Hi, I'm Mary C. Curtis, and this is Equal Time. This week, we're going to get a bit wonky. We're going to discuss Congress and reconciliation. In case you don't live and breathe Congress, reconciliation is a method for the majority, and in this case, Democrats, to allow for a simple Senate majority to pass any legislation in its chamber. And President Biden has made clear from day one that he has a wide-ranging agenda on social justice needs, such as immigration, education, environment, childcare, and even the debt limit. To be able to pass sweeping legislation on issues sure to meet some opposition, Democrats have embraced the reconciliation process to pass legislation some would call sweeping and they might characterize as necessary fixes. The changes would increase funding for social safety nets that otherwise would never stand a chance. Today, we're going to discuss why it matters and look at the prospects with two experts. First, congressional scholar Norman Ornstein, emeritus scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, a Washington, D.C. conservative think tank, will weigh in. Then, we'll turn to DNC Chair Jamie Harrison to discuss what's at stake for the Democratic Party and how one senator seems to have more power than just about anyone else including the president. We want to welcome Norm Orenstein uh, to Equal Time. So welcome, and thank you for joining our listeners here, Norm. Oh, my pleasure, Mary. Well, we want our listeners to understand just what's going on right now. Uh, We have these bills. They know there's an infrastructure bill, and there's a reconciliation bill as well. Uh, We want them to understand this process called reconciliation, Is it unusual? And just what's going on right now? So first, it's not unusual. Uh, In fact, although it was originally designed to be something relatively minor uh, back when the uh, the Budget Act was put in place in the 1970s, it was going to be a way in which you took the budget that the House and Senate would pass and basically reconcile the numbers and send instructions to the other committees so that they could carry out the taxing and spending that were in the budget. But uh, it didn't take long before members of Congress realized that it could have significantly more power. And probably the main reason for this is that the Senate built in different procedures for reconciliation than they have for any other legislative uh, opportunities. And that meant 50 votes or a majority, simple majority, an expedited up or down vote. You know, we now have, just as an example, uh, changed or seen the change in the rules in the Senate for nominations and confirmation for executive appointees and for uh, judges. But for those, they simply lowered the threshold for cloture from three-fifths of the Senate to a majority of the Senate. You still have long delays that can take place before you actually get to a vote. Reconciliation, you bring it up, you get the vote. Now it's been used for many major pieces of legislation involving Medicare and Medicaid, Almost every single uh, big tax cut that we've seen from the uh, Bush era all the way through uh, Trump, it was used for, of course, the Affordable Care Act uh, to uh, get it originally through the Senate. And we've seen it used 
for multiple other purposes uh, that have to be budget related. And there are some constraints in the Senate. But now, where almost everything is filibustered by Republicans who have uh, 50 uh, seats but only need 40 to block things from taking place, initiatives of the uh, administration, the Biden administration, reconciliation becomes the way in which you can shoehorn in a lot of different priorities. And we saw it with the American Rescue Act, uh, the first major uh, sweeping piece of legislation that passed early in the Biden administration. We see it now with uh, what would be, if it managed to make it through, um, a dramatic change in not just fiscal policy, but social policy for America. Now, I would add, Mary, that it's also, of course, not the only thing going on, as you mentioned initially. We had a separate bipartisan infrastructure bill that passed the Senate um, with bipartisan support, uh, enough to get over a filibuster, not done through reconciliation. Much smaller, new spending about $550 billion. The reconciliation bill that they've been talking about is $3.5 trillion. But they're joined together at the hip, and that's something we might want to talk about as well. Yeah, well, let's talk about that. Um, progressives uh, particularly want the infrastructure and reconciliation bills linked. Can you explain why and what's at stake? So the bipartisan bill was dramatically cut back. Um, it was portrayed as being a trillion dollars in infrastructure spending. Much of it was already spending that had been committed for different purposes. And as I mentioned, the new spending is about $550 billion. There's a lot of pent-up demand for physical infrastructure, and that's what's been included in this bill. But it also, because it was required to get Republican votes, didn't include any revenues from uh, the almost $2 trillion tax cut passed during the Trump administration. Nothing that would hit um, the super wealthy or corporations much of it not really paid for at all, but it's a very much scaled back bill. For progressives in both the House and Senate, but in particular now in the House, the only reason that they would go along with this uh, scaled back bipartisan bill was the belief and the promise that they could then get in a partisan way, because Republicans simply are not going to support it, a much bigger and more ambitious infrastructure bill that includes what is being called human infrastructure. And that includes childcare support and extension and expansion of the child tax credit, a whole lot of uh, things involving climate change and significantly more on the physical infrastructure part as well. At one point, President Biden, uh, mistake, uh, made a mistake, I think you could say, at least a political mistake, in saying he would not sign the bipartisan bill unless it came simultaneously with this broader reconciliation bill. Republicans revolted. He stepped back a little bit. They were able to get the support in the Senate for that bipartisan package. But in the House, where uh, some of the more moderate Democrats said, we don't want to join these bills at all. We have an urgent need for that bipartisan bill. Pass that or we won't vote for anything. 
And the compromise that Speaker Pelosi worked out was they would pass the budget resolution, which sets the table for reconciliation, and guarantee a vote on that bipartisan package by September 27th. Now, in the meantime, in the roughly 20 days, slightly less before uh, that deadline occurs, the Senate is trying to work out some compromise on that reconciliation package that will get the 50 votes that they need, and they're only going to get them from Democrats. And of course, we know that there are some Democrats, Joe Manchin in particular, and Kristen Sinema, who are revolting against that large a package. Bernie Sanders says, uh, who's the chair of the Senate Budget Committee, who originally proposed a $6 trillion package, says, I've already compromised almost in half what I want, and I don't want to go down any further. And now we're waiting to see whether they can bring that package together. If not, we will get that vote on September 27th. And if I had to guess right now, my guess is that progressive Democrats will not vote for the bill. And then we'll have to wait and see what happens with the two packages and whether they can work something out that will satisfy all the Democrats. Keep in mind that there are 50 Democrats, 50 Republicans in the Senate with the vice president able to cast a tie-breaking vote. But in the House, Nancy Pelosi can lose only three Democrats if she doesn't get any Republicans. And that leaves the margin perilously thin. And of course, you have moderates like Josh Gottheimer, uh, who don't want a big uh, reconciliation package, and a whole lot of progressives who won't vote for the scaled back infrastructure without getting that reconciliation package. Tough conundrum. Yes. And also, I'd be interested in, um, since he's become... I guess one of the most powerful politicians now, what your thoughts are on the fact that West Virginia Senator, the Democrat Joe Manchin, has really made his views really known and thrown down the gauntlet several times on uh, this spending package. But keep in mind that, uh, as President Biden said the other day, so far on everything else, including uh, most uh, of the confirmations, of judges and executive appointees, including on the American Rescue Plan, including on that bipartisan package, Joe Manchin has gone along. Manchin is a politician, pretty pragmatic politician. But on this one, he has made statements that suggest that the line that he's drawing is very far from where most of the other Democrats want to be. He's now said that he wants to cut very substantially back on some of the really important things that progressives want in human infrastructure, including child care and the child tax credit, which he wants to means test, which would be a very tricky thing to do. And he's made it pretty clear he doesn't like the climate change uh, aspects of this. Now, Joe Manchin comes from coal country in West Virginia. What's now coming out is that his family is deeply invested to the tune of many, many millions of dollars in uh, fossil fuels. So he's getting a lot of pushback on this front that this is a self-interested thing. But Manchin is a politician. And right now, I suspect what's going to happen is that President Biden will sit down with Joe Manchin and they will try and cut a deal. I don't think it's going to be in the range of one trillion or one and a half trillion, which is where Manchin uh, ostensibly drew his line. 
but it'll be less than the 3.5 trillion as well. Maybe it'll be somewhere around two and a half uh, trillion. But keep in mind that it's not just Joe Manchin. Manchin gets all the attention. Um, he's written uh, op-eds that uh, get dominant attention on cable news networks. He's written uh, pieces that, of course, get attention otherwise. Cinema is a major player in this as well. And while she is, on the whole, more progressive when it comes to these social policies than Joe Manchin, um, you cannot uh, believe necessarily that if Manchin cuts a deal, cinema is going to say that's fine. I think she's a little annoyed that he's the one who seems to be the only kingmaker here. Um, and there may be others who will raise their voices. And of course, for Chuck Schumer, the majority leader in the Senate, he also has to keep the Bernie Sanders wing of his party uh, content enough that they will swallow hard and vote for something that is much less than what they really want. Yeah, well, you know, all of these issues like addressing climate change, uh, universal pre-K, uh, college, paid family, sick leave, health care, that's so much a part of the Democratic agenda that they've promised their voters. Is there any other way to push this agenda other than reconciliation? No. Uh, the fact is reconciliation is the only way to do this. And obviously, for anything, you're going to need the 50 votes. Um, Norm, you know, in a way, the world has changed. We have to set all of these uh, policies in the context of current developments, for example, COVID and its repercussions, people have seen it's highlighted uh, disparities and equities in our healthcare system, uh, childcare needs to employment assistance, and of course, the need to combat climate change, which has been highlighted by these cascading weather catastrophes all over the country. Um, do you think that will add to the urgency and actually the support to the need for legislation that is this sweeping? Well, certainly, uh, when we see the devastation that uh, Hurricane Ida caused um, and the need for uh, major investment in infrastructure, not just because of the crumbling infrastructure from the past, but because of what's been destroyed, there is a strong push to get this done. And it's not going to be done unless there's some way of pulling these two packages together. Uh, but the other part of this to keep in mind is that with some of these disasters, with an economy that's uh, taken a hit because of COVID and continues to. And uh, let's keep in mind that that hit is particularly strong in those red states where you have governors who have refused to get behind vaccination or masking or the things that could keep the Delta variant from exploding. Um, but we also know that after Afghanistan, President Biden's standing has taken a hit. He is now below 50% in most surveys. And that means that his ability to uh, jawbone, to persuade his own Democrats, to go along with something that's not perfect from their perspective, is going to be a little bit harder. And there is some time pressure on this as well, because the closer you get to the second year of the presidency, as you approach that midterm contest, members of the president's party get more nervous, they're less willing to go out on a limb. And so uh, the next few weeks become very, very crucial. 
Do you think that Americans' views are changing on how much the government should be involved in addressing things like income inequality and other issues that affect their lives? So, you know, we have to keep in mind that with the narrowest margins imaginable, uh, Joe Biden managed to get um, uh, this American Rescue Plan, um, a a nearly multi-trillion dollar bill that made some dramatic changes in social policy uh, that was widely accepted and popular among Americans, all of the different elements of it. Um, I actually think that the public is not averse to a government role, um, a larger government role. These things go in cycles. And there is a real understanding that in many of these areas, from housing to childcare, to support for families, um, that uh, we need to have a substantial government role. Um, we're back, to, I think, to understanding that uh, we need a, a, at least a safety net that government provides that's a pretty robust one. But the backdrop of all of this is the tribalization of our politics. COVID, um, you know, I, I see so many analysts saying the country's deeply divided over COVID. Well, that's true at one level, but the fact is that we have a political party that's decided to stake its ground on denying that the measures that the overwhelming majority of people in public health and scientists say, and that the evidence in other countries show works to contain uh, this deadly virus, vaccinations and masking, that those are not just uh, ineffective, but wrong. We're now seeing demonstrations trying to block people from getting vaccinated. We see threats against school boards for wanting to impose mask mandates in schools, which of course include large numbers of children who can't be vaccinated yet because they're not allowed to uh, under the age of 12. So we're in a, a different world now, and we're in a world where almost anything that a President Biden proposes is going to be bitterly opposed by uh, those in the other party who see all of this as evil and trying to destroy our way of life. So broad public consensus, even if you have, if you separate out some of these policies, people who think they're okay, if they're proposed by uh, the leader of uh, one tribe, they're going to be opposed by the other, and they're not going to get support from members of the other party. Bipartisan support is not going to happen in most areas, and that makes these policies more radioactive than they otherwise would be. Oh, I think you're so very right. Um, now, to get a little bit wonky again, in all of this, the, the uh, parliamentarian can pull back on some of this reconciliation, the budget parliamentarian, if it is judged not to deal with fiscal issues. Is that correct? Yes. Um, the way in which reconciliation has been designed, the measures that are in it have to primarily have an impact on the budget or on fiscal policy. Now, they also have other constraints. They're supposed to be uh, not add to deficits or debt after a 10-year period. We've seen all kinds of um, almost ridiculous manipulations, these tax cuts that have increased the debt by trillions of dollars are artificially ended after 10 years so that you can at least proclaim that you're gonna get this enormous infusion of cash and that will balance the budget. And then they've manipulated the numbers 
um, not with no intent of seeing those things happen. But the fact is that parliamentarians can block some actions from taking place. And they did, the uh, Senate parliamentarian did say that an increase in the minimum wage, uh, which was brought up as part of the American Rescue Plan, did not meet the characteristics of reconciliation. So some things that are more social policy than they are fiscal policy might be vulnerable. But most of what we're talking about here, you can make a case, has a budget or fiscal impact. And uh, we're going to see some challenges. But what we also have to remember is that those challenges, uh, if they come from the parliamentarian, they still have to be um, cited and approved by the president of the Senate, the presiding officer. The parliamentarian only offers advice. If the president of the Senate, which is the vice president of the United States, sitting in the chair says, the chair believes that this does fit within the uh, boundaries of reconciliation, then that can be appealed, but Democrats can uh, uh, keep that ruling in place. So there are ways to get around this if you have a united party. Um, although every time you push the envelope, it means that the next time it'll be pushed even further. I so appreciate uh, you spending time. So thoughtful. And I thank you, uh, Norm Ornstein, for kind of getting the equal time listeners a little straight on what's next on these issues in Congress. Thank you again. You bet. My pleasure. So now that Norm Ornstein has laid out just how the process of reconciliation works, let's turn to DNC Chair Jamie Harrison to talk about the importance of this legislation to the Democratic Party agenda. Well, thank you, Chair Harrison, uh, for coming back to Equal Time to explain to our listeners what's going on right now in Congress with the reconciliation bill, the infrastructure package, and what it means for the Democratic Party and the Biden agenda. So thank you for coming back. Well, thank you for having me. I'm really appreciated. And, uh, um, you know, this, this bill, this legislation right now is just extremely important. And I think it's crucial for this administration and their agenda because it's our opportunity as Democrats to support families, uh, not just for this generation, but I think generations to come. This will be... Um, uh, just a game changer in terms of policy. Well, when you're talking about game changer and changing it for generations, you get an idea of how massive this infrastructure bill was. When he first announced it, it really felt revolutionary, sort of in the same category as a New Deal, FDR-esque kind of agenda. Uh, it tackled childcare, parental leave, so many other issues that have been passed over for decades. But then many of them were stripped from the bill that's now being marked up. So what are the options? Well, the things that this bill still in includes, uh, this legislation would expand pre-kindergarten education, which is so crucial to the next generation of, of, of Americans, uh, child care for working families. You know, my wife and I are both professionals ourselves, and I understand how hard child care has been, particularly in this COVID era that we're living in. Family leave, also important. Healthcare, you will see some changes in the Medicare program, adding uh, dental and vision and um, 
and so many other aspects of Medicare that aren't existing right now. Uh, the ability to negotiate on prescription drugs and, and drop that down lower. It'll also extend the child tax credit, which thus far has helped millions of kids escape the, the ravages of poverty. Uh, and this bill also includes uh, and commits funds to combating climate change. Uh, we see right now with Hurricane Ida and, and the devastation that it has caused for places that haven't had to deal with hurricanes that much in the Northeast. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is going to be commonplace, folks. Yeah, well, you have a big job as party chair, but you also have a job of balancing the needs of the progressives that make up so much of the enthusiasm of the Democratic Party, and it represents the future, with the needs of the moderates, the blue dogs, who provide needed seats for the majority, and it is tight, and they need to get reelected in 2022 to maintain those majorities, and hopefully, I guess, you, you would like them to strengthen them. So, uh, we're seeing that play out in the reconciliation uh, infrastructure debate right now. So how are you dealing with that? Yeah, you know, it, th- this isn't my first rodeo dealing with uh, tight margins and trying to get uh, legislation through Congress. Uh, uh, I'm happy that I no longer have to uh, do the vote counting. You know, it, it used to be that I was the floor director for the majority whip's office uh, when Democrats took back control in 2006. And my job was to get the 218 votes in order to pass any bill with a 15-seat majority. At that time, I thought it was a slim majority. What they have to deal with now is even more slim. Um, But, you know, in the end of the day, this is what I tell the members of Congress, that it takes all of them, Democrats, progressives, uh, uh, Democratic progressives, uh, Democratic moderates, Democratic conservatives. It takes all of them to get things done so that they ultimately can deliver for uh, the people that send them to Washington, D.C. to represent them. Well, you mentioned op-eds and you do have West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin writing them, (laughs) saying what he will and will not accept in the bills. And you have Senator Bernie Sanders saying what his line is that he draws. So, is, is Will that sausage get made? How will it when you have people drawing very public lines here? I believe that we are in a, at an inflection point right now where as a country uh, and as a party, that we need to act for the American people. That's important that we do that. We are already seeing Republicans, many of them, uh, attacking this package as being too broad. Some have even dropped that dreaded uh, S-word, socialism, that we're remaking American society. How are you going to sell the piece that you are talking about today with our listeners that this is needed legislation? The greatest assets that we have as a nation are the people of this great nation. That's what makes America so special. It's the people in this nation. And we got to do all that we can in order to protect the people, in order to make sure that they can all live the American dream. Where the Republicans are thinking about, you know, uh, tax cuts for major corporations, we're thinking about how grandma and grandpa with, you know, prescription drug prices going through the roof, how they can make sure that they can eat, they can pay their electric bill and at the same time get their medicine. That's what the Democratic Party is thinking about. And the Republicans had an opportunity during the Trump administration to address many of these issues, but they failed to do that. You know what they did do? 
they passed uh, 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 billions of dollars in tax cuts for the largest corporations and the most wealthy in this country. You know, the, the working class people were secondary, not, probably not even a radar on the radar for these folks. But Joe Biden has said to the American people, and this Democratic Party is going to keep that commitment, that I'm thinking about you and your families and your communities first and foremost, and I'm going to be working on behalf of you. And so that's going to be our message going into it. And it's not just words. It's not just empty. Just take a look at what we've been able to do in Congress, what we're doing right now, and, and contrast that what's happening on the other side of the aisle. Well, let's talk a little bit about that C word, which is compromise and getting all of the folks in your party on board, not just for this bipartisan legislation, but for the reconciliation. What kind of compromises are, do you think you will have to make and that will keep everyone happy? Well, you know, in the end of the day, uh, it takes both progressives and conservative Democrats in order to make a majority. And if they want to stay in the majority, that means you got to find ways to work together in order to, to sustain that. And that's really, really important. They need to figure out what it is that are their individual interests. What are the things that are the priorities for their particular districts? And they need to come to the table and have a conversation with their colleagues in order to paint a path forward. And I believe that it will happen. I've seen it happen in the past. I've been a part of it happening in the past. And I don't see anything different at this point. Uh, this juncture to tell me that it won't happen once again. Well, that's, of course, your goal. But uh, what is it that you do and say when you have someone like uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez say that they won't vote for this unless you have all these pieces in the package? And then you say Manchin says he won't vote for it. Bernie Sanders says he won't yield more. Just you're the party chair. How do you get them close together? That's my message to, to, to the members that you, you can't get caught up in the Washington, D.C., Capitol Hill semantics. Yes, as a part of member of Congress, that's important to you. And I understand that. But in the end of the day, when you ask people, uh, you know, what do you think about this deal? Um, what happens? The debate is not going to be about you know, whether this bill or that bill was voted on first. Or that bill or that this bill costs this amount as opposed to that amount. It's going to be about, once again, did you deliver for my community? You said that you were going to do something. Weren't you able to deliver for my community? And in the end of the day, every member of Congress is going to have to go back to their districts and answer that question. What role is the president playing? And you're working with him? Uh, the, the, I think the president plays an immense role. Um, you know, he is the leader of our party. Uh, and so, it, you know, when you run into roadblocks in, in the end of the day, he will be the, you know, the executive, the deciding chief to help broker the broker the deals when they need to be, need to happen. But he's he's laid out the parameters and um, for what he wants and what, you know, and these are all based off the promises that he made the American people when he ran for president. And so, uh you know, Speaker Pelosi, Leader Schumer, uh, and so many leaders in the House and the Senate are working in order to make that happen. And I believe, again, as somebody who's been a veteran of, of these issues and these type of deliberations in the past, it will happen. And the president will have a bill to sign. Uh, and in the end of the day, we'll make uh, a dramatic and positive 
uh, impact on the lives of the American people. What happens if this bill, after all of these markups, et cetera, compromises, it doesn't pass? It's going to pass. That's not an option. We are going to get something to to the president on his desk um, so that he can sign and continue to deliver for the American people. Well, I certainly agree that these are certainly unprecedented and very interesting times. So I appreciate you. Uh, Chair Harrison, for coming on Equal Time and helping our listeners make some sense of what is going on. Thank you so much. I appreciate you letting me uh, having me on. What's keeping me up at night? A lot of things. But at the moment, climate. A recent Washington Post analysis of federal disaster declarations found that nearly one in three Americans live in a county hit by a weather disaster in the past three months. And I believe it. Having recently visited the West Coast, where vegetation was decidedly brown and the red-tinged haze in the distance had me fearing conflagration. A friend who lives near there has gone through times when she kept a bag packed and ready for a hasty evacuation. And there was that obligatory phone call to my son in New York asking if one of those flooded subway stations was one that he regularly takes. Humans often seem to fight new battles with old methods until it's too late. I'm not a pessimist. Okay, maybe a little, but we have some work to do. Let me know what's on your mind by tweeting me at mcurtisnc3. Check out my columns at Roll Call. And thank you for listening to Equal Time. Please subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.